0: Well, welcome to Teen Time Spiritual Conversations for, with, and about women. I'm your host, Tuana Henderson, and I'm excited about today's podcast. Um, today's podcast title is Race in America. And I have a very special guest with me. Her name is Dr. Angela courage Um, uh, She is affectionately known as Doc Courage. And I just want to tell you just a little bit about her. She serves as adjunct professor or a faculty at John Brown University. Uh, University of Arkansas and Ecclesia College. Um, She is also the CEO of Courage Communication for Change, where she serves as a change agent, empowering students, pastors, church leaders, and the community. Um, She holds a Master's of Arts in Communications with focus in interracial and intercultural communication, and her doctorate in higher education with emphasis in college teaching and faculty leadership, empowers her as a change agent in the classroom and community. Uh, Her focus is on the study of interracial and intercultural communications, uniquely qualifies to lead healthy conversations that empower people to better communicate with diverse others. And I love her mantra, which is, the quality of your communication dictates the quality of your relationships. Welcome Doc Courage to Tea Time.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I feel honored.
0: Well, I'm glad to have you and I'm, you know, I'm excited about this conversation and, you know, it's sad that we even have to have this conversation at this time, but I want to just kind of delve right in because there is so much that our nation is dealing with right now. And I think that there's a lot that we need to unravel. Of course, we are coming off of, um, some recent events that have just, um, just kind of opened the wound, if you will, of things for our nation. Um, as you know, we had the killing of Ahmad Avery on February 23rd, who was um, gunned down by two white men. He was a, a black uh, man um, who was suspected of burglary. Um, and then recently, um, May 25th, uh, we had the killing of George Perry Floyd, who died in Minneapolis after a white officer knelt on his knee while he was handcuffed on the ground for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And of course, these are just two of just recent incidents. And there are hundreds and hundreds of incidents, unfortunately, that we've had to deal with as a nation. I I guess one of the things that I want to first begin with, because a lot of times people wonder, why do I have to deal with this or why isn't it an issue for me? And so I guess my first question uh, to you is as believers, why should we even care about the issue of race?
1: Well, I think because it's directly addressed in scripture. I think because the first century church cared about it and dealt with it, um, we the word race isn't in scripture, but they dealt with an equivalent of what we're dealing with in with race. Uh anywhere you hear conversation about Jews and Gentiles in the scripture, they were dealing with what we considered to be race. And by the way, race isn't really a thing, it's a social construct, it's not a biological thing. It's it's a culture that we've created. They were also dealing with cultural differences which had some physical Markers, um, you know, circumcision being one of them, but also the ways people dressed, the ways people talked, and the ways people worshipped. Those things are markers of culture.
0: Yeah. So, talk to us about the work that you do. How How do you describe the work that you do?
1: Well, um, I consider myself a change agent. I I create change by one helping educate people. Um, and also by helping create events and conversations where people can have conversations in a safe manner that listen to each other. But one of the things that happens or has happened in the white community since the onset of United States of America is that white people haven't listened. Um There's this thing that we'll talk about more later called in-group, out-group theory. This is a communication theory, so pardon me if I do professor a little bit. But um, that is a human phenomenon that humans like to make, um, demonize other people groups so that we can use them in whatever way we see fit. We see it in scripture where Jews were kind of demonizing uh, Gentiles so that they could justify not sharing the gospel with them. And so we can uh, see that in multiple ways in, in scriptural accounts. That's, that's what I do is I try to re-educate people who are dealing with misinformation and biases and just flat-out racism where they're willing to be re-educated. Um, I do events in the community, in church organizations. I do, you know, training and conversations to help uh, develop really better leadership skills around um, diversity and inclusion.
0: So, of course, our viewers can't see us, uh, but they can hear us. So I'm a black woman. You're a white woman. How did this even all begin for you? And and, and what motivates you to, to do this kind of work?
1: Well, it's, it's a long story, but the beginning of it was in my childhood. Um, I had the blessing of not being raised where my parents were raised. Um, I'm a child of the 60s. I was born in 19. 19- so if I was born and raised in the south like my parents were I might be like a lot of people and think like a lot of people who are white people who are born and raised in the south but in the providence of God uh, my father joined the military and so I was born in Massachusetts but then my first memories aren't in the states until I was a preteen so Mm -hmm. I was raised in Italy um, so my first memories of people outside of my family were of people that didn't even speak English and that didn't have the same ways that we do of greeting or um, even having families. Uh, and then my I went to school in Germany uh, in, in military schools. So in the military, especially in list, enlisted ranks, um, a lot of the people who are enlisted in the military are poor socioeconomically and have no way to go to college or have no other job choices. So I mm-hmm. went to school and, and we know in America, that is a lot of people of color. Mm-hmm. And so I went to school with other military kids. I was not the majority there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up until we came to the United States, just thinking it was normal to have all different languages and all different people together and our church or that we went to overseas was similar in that just whoever was a Protestant went to the same services and and on the same base. So we had people of multiple languages and cultures because military people often marry um, people they meet when they're overseas. So I just thought that was normal. And um, I had learned enough scripture by the time we moved to the United States, that scripture supported it in my mind. It had never even been challenged until I moved to the United States and started hearing the N-word. And uh, I is in church and I was I knew it was really a bad word by the way it was said. I just didn't know what it meant. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I just thought that Americans were really mean and that they didn't. They hadn't read the Bible,
0: <laughs> so that's kind of where it started. Or the same Bible. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, let's, you know, that's so interesting. You know how your just your background just kind of shaped, um, you know, all of the the, impr- the imprintings that you had. Um, talk to us about uh, because that is such a different um, view. A lot of times. Talk to us about the friends that you have been able to have and, and your, the friends that you have with other white people who, um, who didn't have the same imprinting that you had. Has that been a struggle? Um, have you been put in situations where you've had to defend certain things? What, what does that look like for you? Uh,
1: so it's a tightrope sometimes um especially in predominantly white churches so um it's 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 a tightrope but it gives you the benefit of hearing what other people who look like you think so you know uh since we came back to the United States I've been in predominantly white spaces until I left home because that's you know my parents choices and so I grew up hearing a lot of racism and bias when we moved to the states and so I know some of the insider conversations.
0: Um
1: it, when the lord gave me an opportunity to go to college I was 38 already but um because of my early imprinting I had married across the culture line and I had had latino and black children and so I had already been kind of immersed outside of white culture in my 20s and 30s and had the opportunity to do a lot of listening um, to people who were not white. And so when the Lord gave me an opportunity to get an education, um, I didn't even know there was a science about all these things I'd been observing since childhood about the different way people did things and understood life based on their culture and color, um, and their, their experiences. So yes, it's, it's difficult. Um, it's difficult sometimes to talk to white people because white people are really defensive. A lot of white people, not everybody. So I try to focus my energies on people who are interested and willing to learn. And, um, I let the Holy spirit deal with the people who aren't ready to learn yet. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and unfortunate incidents that have happened recently that we've seen on videos of um, executions. Um, sometimes, uh, if somebody's heart isn't completely hardened the lord uses those things to convince people who were otherwise hardened that there's something you need to change here and then they become open and send me messages can you help me understand this so mm-hmm. that's uh the as far as my relationships in the black community when um and latino community i married into the latino community Um, and when, when I left my parents' home, I was able to start going to churches that were not predominantly white or, or that were mixed. I'd say they were still predominantly white, but they had more than just white people because I was married to, into a Latino family. So, um, but then also had Latino children in all of my child raising life. We just wanted to honor their identities and their need to identify with their culture and Mm -hmm. who they would you know how they would want to identify as they grew up as well so I've had a lot of opportunity throughout my life because um, first of all you know that early imprinting and secondly you pay attention to it and you make it important
0: yeah yeah. So you talked about the defensiveness that sometimes exists with some white people. Let's talk about what that is and why that is.
1: Well, there there are words that are really triggering um, because they feel like accusations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm not saying not to use these words. I'm just saying we need to understand these words. Um, white people need to understand that when you hear the word privilege, it's not an accusation. It's like a scientific fact that white people get treated differently in society than people of color.
0: Now let's talk let's talk about that because there are white people listening to this and they have no idea what you mean when we use the term white privilege. So right. what does that mean? Because there's there are there, there are people listening to to this and they're wondering, you know, what in the world are you talking about?
1: Right? Um, and that's one of those really triggering words. If I say privilege it's triggering if I say white privilege is like uh, amygdala hijack right there. Um so white privilege is is a sociological term um, and it's best used in academic circles, but we hear it thrown around on Facebook and other places, and it's easily misunderstood. White privilege is just the fact that I can expect as a white person that I can do some normal everyday things in life and even some bad things and be treated with more dignity than a black person might be treated or a Latino person might be treated. Um, For instance, if I did what George Floyd did and I went into a store and passed a $20 bill that was counterfeit, I may or may not know it was a counterfeit bill, and they may call the police just like they did for uh, George Floyd, who may or may not have known it was a counterfeit bill. But when the police came, I would have been treated differently as a white woman than George Floyd was. I certainly would not have been pinned down and somebody on my neck um, for almost nine minutes. I would have just been treated differently. And we know it it wasn't just a case-for-case basis. We know statistically um, Department of Justice um, investigations on multiple communities where police abuse has been investigated over multiple years. We know statistically that police abuse is much more likely to happen in communities of color and poor communities. So there's a lot of evidence to support this thing called white privilege. So instead of viewing it as an accusation that you have done something wrong as a white person. View it as a advantage that you have from being a white person. You really didn't earn. I mean, I didn't make myself white. Um, I didn't, um, you know, make myself with. This kind of hair, which by the way i do I do make some of it you know more tame or whatever I do to it, but I didn't make my I, I didn't bring myself to this package if my parents were wealthy, which they weren't, and if I inherited wealth, I didn't do that I didn't earn it so privilege is unearned benefits, and um white people have a lot more unearned benefits than people of color in this country because our forefathers set it up that way. And um, black people have only just recently been given legally uh, the right to safety, Um, 1964. And we're still not following those laws. Uh, The Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, 1965, two different parts of it. And we're still not following those laws, as has been demonstrated in some of the recent videos. So that's what's meant by white privilege, is that we have privilege, or I hear some people call it blessing of mm-hmm. being treated as if we're innocent, even if we're accused. And as if um, we have a right to run down the street jogging without being accused of stealing. So mm-hmm. we're presumed innocent when we go into stores and people of color are often not. Um, my son, my oldest son is Latino and he looks Latino the older my children get the less white they look. And he's 36 and he was pulled over um, when he was in college and the officer told him he pulled him over because he saw him on his phone. My son didn't even have his phone with him. He got a ticket for uh, not cooperating with the officer. He got a ticket for being on his phone and he couldn't pay the tickets because he was in college and he was working part-time delivering um, pizzas. And he didn't have the money to hire a lawyer. He didn't call my husband and I and let us know. He ended up spending a week in jail because he couldn't pay those tickets. That would not have happened to me um, if my son had called us. We would have found a way to get him out of jail, right? Mm-hmm. So he 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 may have had some privilege because he had resources um, that other people don't have that he didn't decide to use. But um, there are many people who don't have parents they could call. Um, But he got pulled over and treated as if he was guilty solely because he looked Latino in this area where um, they are doing a lot of checking of papers. He was also asked for his papers by the officer uh, to prove he was legally able to be here. So that's just an example of the difference of, in the way a person who may, a person of color may be treated when they're pulled over versus, I've never been asked for my papers, you know, right, yeah. <laughs> I'm often pulled over without my license or mm-hmm. happen, And I just give them my name. They don't mm-hmm. drag me out of the car. They don't give me a ticket. I've, I've often not had my license and not been ticketed or anything.
0: Yeah, and you know there are those who will argue. um, Well, they must have been doing something wrong. I mean, there you know there are people who are just doing things wrong. They're not abiding by the law, or you know, there's something there. There's some reason why you know they are being stopped or they are being held or whatever the case may be. You know, but not because of some other issue or some other bias. and I think you kind of answer that, but what do you say to those people who are so committed to believing that that there must have been something wrong and, and and what I'm asking is, can you speak to further about the inequities um, even if somebody is doing something wrong?
1: Yeah um well, first of all, I think that that's a bias that a racial bias. That leads you to say they must have been doing something wrong, and if you say that, if that's your reaction, I strongly encourage you to go and take the Harvard Implicit Bias Test, and it'll let you know if you have a reaction that is negative towards a certain ethnic group or not. Uh, you can just Google it: Harvard Implicit Bias Test, and take the one on race. Um, so it's a it's a it's a bias that you have that leads you to believe that in the first place. Um, Secondly, we know statistically that black and brown people get pulled over and ticketed more often than white people Mm -hmm. and have even more heavily in um, black and brown communities and in poor communities. So uh, we know statistically we know this. So um, but let's say someone is doing something wrong. Let's say George Floyd did pass a counterfeit 20 and he knew he was passing a counterfeit 20. There is no law that says that's a death penalty. Everybody, according to our constitution, deserves due process. And even if he did that, the maximum uh, penalty would have been, what, 10 years in prison? It's not a death penalty. And nobody deserves to be tried uh, tried and convicted and executed by one person who's yeah. gay, may, maybe just angry or maybe hopped up on steroids or who whoever knows, or maybe just a bigot, you know, who knows what the, what, uh, I hear a lot of reasons given why police may engage in brutality and that's okay. You know, the implication mm-hmm. is that that's okay. But then when, when uh, a person of color does something wrong, they deserved it. They deserve death and police don't even deserve to be tried. That is a chief example, you didn't ask this question, but I want to go there, of what we call in-group and out-group behavior. Mm-hmm. So in-group behavior is is where we recognize somebody as like us, as belonging to us, and we usually do it by visual clues unless they're somebody we know. And so this is a, a phenomenon that is active in every culture throughout history. And so people who are in our in-group, we we care about. We help them without equitable returns. If we see they're in trouble on the side of the road, we'll help them. And we care about if they're injured. Uh, we go to their assistance. People in our out group, we don't care about if they're hurt. We don't care about if they're injured. We say it was their fault. Um, uh, and if and we demand equitable returns. If we do decide to help them, we want to pay back. Um, and if they make a mistake, we often do things like, uh, that are called the fundamental attribution error. So we make an attribution about why they made the mistake. And our attribution is always about their character, their genes, you know, some failing in them. But if somebody in our in-group made that same mistake, we say, the example being the police officer, we say, well, if they were under a lot of stress their circumstances did it. It's not who they are. It's not that Mm -hmm. their genes are bad. So these are some examples of our hypocrisy and, and the science and what we know scientifically that humans do. Um, scripturally, this is part of what we are to be purified of and sanctified of is this, um, sin, this is part of our sin nature is to objectify and human, dehumanize other people.
0: Absolutely. You know, recently um, there was a situation, it was, um, I think it went pretty viral with a um, CEO of a corporation, CPI Security, where um, uh, he had responded to an email from a former employee um, about his um, impressions on. Um, uh, uh, racial injustices and and basically was just trying to get a statement from him um, as um, there had been other statements from other CEOs rallying around and showing their support. Um, instead, the CEO um, Ken uh, Gill responded and said that um, you know he kind of felt like that you know her time should have been put somewhere else. And there was a lot of black on black crime and focus on that and, you know, and not focus on things that aren't as important. There are, and let me, and let me just say this in his defense. I think once it came out, he did come up, he, he did come back and, and, um, and acknowledge his ignorance and his insensitivity, um, and has made a commitment to, to, to hearing and, um, and, and learning um, two things. One, um, why is it so difficult for people to listen to each other?
1: Well, I think it's uh, in group, out group behavior. Um, so I attribute it partially to our sin nature. Uh, secondly, to the way we're raised um, by and socialized by um, mostly homeogeneous groups. You know, we know that we're in a highly segregated America, and if we're going to a predominantly white church and we live in a predominantly white neighborhood and we go to a predominantly white school, we're going to only learn the experience of white people. Now, we may learn the experience of rich to poor white people, but we don't learn the experience of anybody else. And we don't learn the experience of international people. We don't learn the experience of immigrants. So we believe that that's the way it is. And that's the way that is normal to be. And so um, lack of exposure to more than your perspective or your type of people is one reason. Um, Mm -hmm. But the lack of willingness to get exposed, you know, Once you have the options and choices and listen, in today's world, if you're not being exposed to other people, you're trying not to be exposed and trying not to learn. It's not, it's not accidental anymore. It's intentional now. So, yeah, yeah, so I think that that's one big thing. And the other thing is like culturally, culturally, America is considered a, This is not my word. Don't be offended. Um, Hofstede did research in the 80s, started in the 80s. And he, um, he identified cultural dimensions, and one of those cultural dimensions was cultures that are that are on a continu- continuum between feminine cultures and masculine cultures. His work, and the United States was one of the top five masculine cultures in all of the world. And so, in masculine cultures, we favor aggression, we favor going to war over negotiation. We've so we're very Aggressive and uh, not just violence, but also verbal aggression. Um, We favor capitalism and, um, you know, materialism. And so at all costs, masculine cultures do these things. And we can justify these things because that's what our in-group does. Mm So um, I think one part of that is we don't listen because we'd like to use our power to get our thought, our agenda, and our way. I mean, we've done this throughout history. That's why we're even having this conversation, right? Right. <laughs> so it's part of a highly masculine culture, and that's another reason that people have a difficult time listening is that's not what we do in America. Mm-hmm. I submit we should be doing that as people of God for sure It because the, the scripture says that we should bear each other's burdens. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that word in original language is doesn't mean uh, doesn't mean just help me carry my groceries home. It means if somebody has an unreasonable load, an unfair burden, like their child has been killed, or maybe they're disabled and they can't earn enough money to take care of themselves, we should help carry that load. We should bear one another's burdens, and in so doing, we show the love of Christ. You know, so we are called to listen that's what uh and that's why we should be listening right now especially to african americans in this in this huge grief hopefully we are all hugely grieved but white people uh should be listening to african americans um and their stories of grief and their experiences and not saying well i don't think that's true how do you know uh so we need to listen so
0: yeah yeah um and I totally agree. i think a lot of times um, um white people um may feel like you know i have a black friend
1: a, <laughs> <T-word>. a.
0: <laughs> i have a black friend or you know my family knows my heart um when they when when things like that are said w- what are we really saying?
1: What we're saying is, I don't think I'm racist because, see, I can be friends with a Black person. What we don't realize we're saying is, I may be racist, but I don't want to admit it because I only have friends with one Black person. And I think they're my friend, but I don't even know if they think they're I'm their friend. Um, the research shows that, that white people, European Americans, are quicker to call people friend than people of color. Mm-hmm. So like we use that term more loosely than other people, but our commitment um is also um also more shallow. So we we use the term friend to mean something more like acquaintance. So hi mm-hmm. there's my friend. oh there oh there's my friend. But it <laughs> doesn't mean a deep commitment that I'm going to keep forever. Um right by contrast, people of color, uh, Latinos, and African Americans specifically, it takes longer to gain someone as your friend um, or to accept someone as your friend if you're a, a person of color in the United States. Uh, the research says uh, you'll uh, probably a year before you decide if they're really a friend or not, and that once someone is a friend, you won't unfriend them, so to speak. But white people are pretty quick to also unfriend you. We may call you our friend this week and you may not be our friend next week. So we have different, definite different applications of the word friend. Um, That's a little rabbit trail there. So understanding that if a white person has a friend, they may be really just an acquaintance uh, in the mind of the person of color.
0: Okay. Yeah, and that makes sense. Um, and I think sometimes we we kind of see that friend as an exception to other people uh, in that um, uh, out group.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I I think if you're the person who says that or feels that, and and most let's go, let's let's say this: if the population is 14% African Americans. And at least 14% of your friends aren't African Americans. Uh there's a there's a problem there, you know. So you should be able to have friends that are representative of the whole population around you. Now, understandable if the population in your hometown is 95% white people, you're probably going to have 95% um Friends that are white. That's why you have to be even more intentional as a white person to listen and to make friends, not just claim people as your friends. That's a little like colonializing a friend, right? Right. <laughs> <To> actually, learn <laughs> how to be a true friend. So,
0: so then what are some practical things that we can do to um, begin to understand one another in our different experiences better?
1: Um, I think the first thing uh, that people need to do is listen to each other. Um, now, I will, if you're a white person listening to this broadcast, I'm going to say you need to listen more. Mm-hmm. Um, we tend to have this 50 um, 50 idea. If I say something, you get to say something for the same amount of time. But let's think about it differently. Let's think about who's been talking the most and the longest and who's being heard right think about who's in charge in this country who's in charge in your community so you're getting the talk all the time as a white person you're mm-hmm. getting listened to all the time if you get pulled over you're going to be listened to um, so instead of thinking of it as a 50/50 exchange well my opinion is just as important as your opinion think of it as You know, we probably really haven't listened enough. So let me just listen to you for a while. Um, I I think that that we need to really make space as white people really make space by asking questions and shutting up and not. uh, Can you say that on this uh, podcast? Asking okay. questions and being silent.
0: <laughs> yes, you can.
1: Okay. <laughs> Ask questions and then shut your mouth um, without arguing or debating that, you know. Uh, yeah. So that's the first thing is uh, listen better and really listen. Uh, uh, but I think there's room for everybody to listen better. I don't think most people want to be racist. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't know many people who I think are racist that think they are,
0: so mm-hmm.
1: I think if somebody is willing to listen and trying to learn um, and you have the energy um, mm-hmm. or you have the time for it, either send them to somebody who does have the energy, and you can send them to me if you want, or um <laughs> you know just uh there is some truth in that the more we understand each other's heart the better we can help each other grow. We, we only grow in trusting relationships. So, um, But we only have so much capacity. So the first thing I would say is um, listen with open and tender hearts.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The second thing I would say, especially to um, people in, white people or people that are dominant in the population, wherever they are, let's say this is international, is that, you have to educate yourself about what you're not hearing all the time. Mm-hmm. So we always hear the views and perspectives of white people, but we often don't. And we it, we see the books, we in school, the publishers, we're all African. I mean, we're all European American. So um, if you're not intentionally going after information and, and um, thoughts of people of color, then you're never going to hear it. You're in a silo and Mm -hmm. will only hear what you want to hear unless you intentionally go, go after information. So educating yourself outside of your silo, outside of your in group is the second piece of advice I would really um, encourage people to. And the caveat to that is don't expect your black friend (laughs) or black friends To bring you up to speed, you know, if your black friend has you asking them to bring you up to speed, they probably have twenty other people too, and they've got Mm -hmm. a day job, you know. So that's just too much. That's just too much to ask. That's another um, unreasonable burden to put. It's not. It's not nice. It's not uh, the friendly thing to do. So, in helping one another bear each other's burdens, just know that people of color in this country are working extra hard, and especially when incidents like this happen, um, to take care of their families, to grieve, to to just survive. And so we don't need to put extra burdens of educate me for free on Facebook while I debate with you instead of listen. to you.
0: Let's yeah, not, yeah. Let's not That's do that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Um, I started with the question uh, about with believers and why we should care about The issue of race. And I guess I want to end with asking, um, you know, what, what should the church be doing? Uh, What, what, what is the church not doing? And what should the church be doing during this time?
1: I think the church should be definitely listening. Um, I think the sin began in the church. Jim Walsh wrote a book called America's Original Sin. And so um, back when Uh, we started importing kidnapped people from Africa the church. And the clergy was key, putting language from the Bible out to the public to justify slavery. Mm -hmm. And distorting scripture, actually, I use the word perverting scripture to mean Mm -hmm. something that really was demonic. And um, it was the clergy, even some of the people we give the most credit to for the Great Revivals. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so it was the clergy who did that. And so also it was the church in America, different denominations who said, uh, this is OK. It was the church that kept, it, kept slavery going for so long. If the church hadn't resisted the efforts at emancipation, slavery would have been over a lot longer. But since the good people of God, <laughs> I say that with quotations, <laughs> you know, um, going, uh, uh, validated this is true we uh we perpetuated the sin for much longer so i think the repentance needs to begin in the church and then when uh, you know uh second chronicles i think 714 says when my people who mm-hmm. are called by my name
0: uh will we'll umble, umble themselves humble pray.
1: themselves and pray pray seek my face Turn, Turn the from their wicked, way. wicked ways, <laughs> then I will heal their land. That's what the church should be doing. Let's stop pointing at the politicians who we we knew before we elected some people that they, they weren't they weren't God people. You know they weren't Jesus people. We knew. So let's stop blaming the politicians who we put in place. Let's clean house. Let's repent. Let's stop treating um, people of color in our own churches badly and um let's clean up let's yeah. repent and then we can then we can probably lead the way in national change um not that we need to lead but i think that uh if we'll repent we can
0: yeah and i think there's so much that the church can do and you know we have the perfect model in jesus i mean who who modeled uh breaking uh racial barriers Yes. Um, Mm-hmm. Um, throughout um, scripture. And I, I I personally love just the story of, of um, Jesus and the woman at the well, yes. you know, in John chapter four and how he just crossed those barriers with her and, um, you know, and it, it, it just modeled what we should be doing. And he wasn't afraid to do that. And he valued her, you know, just in his interaction with her. Um, And and I think there are just numerous uh, places in scripture where um, it models for us um, that we are all one in Christ Jesus. Um, And I think that's where we need to get back to. Um, There are white people and black people who are listening to this podcast and who are struggling with the issues of race in America for various reasons. Um, as we close, um, can you pray for them and for our nation, um, just for the healing um, that needs to take place and then the change that needs to take place?
1: Sure, sure. I would love to. Oh, Father God, Lord Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that these words fall on the ground. I pray that your Spirit permeate which whichever room, Whichever earphones this podcast is played in, Lord, and the truth of your spirit would sink deep into the hearts of all who hear. Lord, I pray that it would create a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and that it would um, cause people to repent who have either been easily triggered, offensive, or just outright um, in sin in their attitudes. Lord, I pray that you help us to listen to each other and to listen where we've been hard-hearted or that our consciences have been seared and help us to make things right. Um, your, your word says that if we will humble ourselves and we will pray and if we will turn from our wicked ways, that you will heal our land. And Lord, that is the land within our own families and within our own communities and within our own churches. We we claim and we ask for healing within our own families, within our own communities, within our own churches. Lord, help us to repent on all of those levels and help us to hear from you and to hear you and to obey you and then also to help take responsibility, not just for ourselves, but for other people in our communities um, who need to who need to learn to do better. Um, I just pray for your anointing and for the the peace of the Holy Spirit to rule our hearts so that we can listen and mm-hmm. so that we can love and so that we do not make demands that we are the only ones that are loved and cared about. Lord, I just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Jesus' name.
0: Amen. Amen. Dr. Courage, thank you for joining us today on Tea Time and just um, allowing um, your spirit to open up for a very candid uh, conversation.
1: Thank you. It so much
0: uh, I enjoyed talking with you and to all of our listeners I look forward to connecting with you the next time be blessed of the Lord